Father, thank you for this opportunity now to look at your word, to be instructed, to be reminded. And by your spirit, Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are teachable and inquisitive and curious so that we would dig in more deeply to these truths and find the glory of what it means when you justify someone, when you justify the ungodly, when you justify sinners like me. Oh, Father, I pray that it would lead us to worship, that our theology would inevitably lead us to doxology, the worship and praise, and to ascribe glory to your great name, for you alone are worthy. Help us now, Father, to think clearly about these things. Protect us from error. Fill us with your truth. Empower us for ministry, we pray, through this text in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to, to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. It's the same text that we looked at last time. I'll tell you, give you a little behind-the-scenes uh, funny that happened last week. Uh, that text that we read this morning about Abraham was supposed to be read last week, but I left the one off of the 17. And so rather than talking about, reading about Abraham, we read about Noah and the ark and the animals coming in two by two. So for those of you who are wondering what that had to do with the sermon, it had nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> so the reason all of our plans are fallible dependent plans is because this church is run by fallible dependent men. <clears throat> this is Romans 4, 13 through 16. Follow along with me. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. Romans 4, 13 through 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and you can be seated. My friends, being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This morning, the centerpiece of our worship service together this morning will be the Lord's Supper, sharing in the Lord's table together. And so the preaching time is going to be somewhat abbreviated. You may remember last time that Paul was teaching us that He's teaching us why justification must be by faith, why it must be by faith, and not by law-keeping. Remember, <clears throat> he, there's a sequence here. It's a little bit muddy, but if you look at it carefully, you can see it in the text. That first Paul was saying, it is not by works, and then he says, it's not by circumcision, and now he's saying, it's not by law. No one is justified by any of these things, or even all of these things. 
And so he's teaching us why justification must be by faith and not by keeping the law. In fact, it seemed clear to me that in this text, Paul offers six reasons why justification must be by faith. Three of them are negative. The first three are negative, and the second three are positive. And we covered the three negative reasons last week, but there just wasn't enough time to get to the other, the other three, the three positive, and uh, I abruptly uh, crash-landed the sermon uh, so we could be done for the sake of our childcare workers. So this week, uh, we need to pick up where we left off. And so let's just review very briefly the three negative reasons why, why justification must be by faith. So justification must be by faith Because the law nullifies faith. The law nullifies faith. Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null. It's nullified. Faith has no place. There is no point for it. Second, we learn that justification must be by faith because the the law voids promise. And this whole thing was based on the promise to Abraham. And so this whole discussion about justification by faith alone comes from those passage, that passage in Genesis where God declared that, that Abraham was just because of his faith. And so the law voids the promise. Look at, at verse 14. It says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and watch this, And the promise is void. The promise, which is the underpinning for the whole thing. In Galatians 3.18, Paul wrote this. Listen carefully. I'll I'll read it slowly so you can follow and and so I can follow. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. It says this. For if the inheritance comes by the law, if the inheritance, which is the promise, right? It's the fulfillment of the promise. If the inheritance... If the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Don't change it, is what he's saying. Don't try to change what God has done. God gave it by promise. Don't make it about earning, self-righteousness, works. That's not how it was delivered. And then the third negative reason justification must be by faith is that the law brings wrath. And we see this very clearly in verse 15. The very first words of verse 15 is, are, the law brings wrath. The law is the basis by which you will be condemned. We've been learning about justification, but we have to understand that before that, at the beginning of the book of Romans, it was all about condemnation. And condemnation is the opposite of justification. And what the law does is it brings about that condemnation by measuring who you are and what you've done, what you've thought your whole life. And it condemns us because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under condemnation unless we are justified. And Paul's argument is you must be justified by faith alone. So these three negative reasons come to us from Paul relative to why justification needs to be by faith and not by law. 
The law nullifies grace. The law voids the promise. And the law, the law brings wrath. And if you missed the fuller explanation last week, uh, just know that you can get on our website and download that and listen to that and catch up. And uh, we would invite you to do that so you, you catch up to the flow of Paul's argument here. But Paul also offers positive reasons why justification must be by faith. And so today, uh, in the few moments we have left before Lord's table, let me, let me share these with you. Number one, why must, the fall, why must justification come by faith? Number one, so it will be by grace. It must come by faith so that it will be by grace. If it's by some other means, then, then grace is nullified. There's no need for grace. Grace does nothing. Grace is decimated. It's worthless. Turn with me to Romans 11, verse 6, just a few pages to the right. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 6. He says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, listen carefully, grace would no longer be grace. It would be something else entirely. You could look at a bologna sandwich and say, that's grace. It's not. It's not. You can call something anything you want to call it, but the reality is, if you are trying to earn this by works, if you could earn it by works, then, then it, it, it's not, it, it couldn't be called grace. So here's what he's saying. Paul is stating the obvious here. He's saying that it's either grace or it's works. And so... Don't point to your religious works and call them grace. They are not grace. Don't call them grace. Grace is when, so let's talk about a definition of grace, and I know we've already done this a couple of times, maybe in a slightly different angle here. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. In this context, in the context of Romans, justice is getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's when you are blessed with something good, even when you deserve something bad, namely condemnation. Grace is often referred to as unmerited. Unmerited means you didn't earn. It's often referred to as unmerited favor. And if it is unmerited, then it cannot, by definition, it cannot be earned. We saw earlier, faith and works exist in opposition to one another. The one cancels out the other. They can't live at the same place in the same time in the same way. On the other hand, faith meshes perfectly with grace. Works and grace, they're antithetical. You bring them together and the whole thing explodes. But you, you can marry grace and faith. It's a perfect union. And so the empty hand of faith receives the gift of God's grace unto justification. So justification by faith, justification by faith, it must be by faith so that it will be by grace. The second positive reason why justification must be by faith is so that 
it can be guaranteed. Guaranteed. Look at verse 16. So that it may rest on grace and be guaranteed. And be guaranteed. Now, now what is a guarantee? Well, it is a promise or assurance that certain conditions will absolutely be fulfilled. The Greek word here has the idea of something that is reliable, something that is certain, something that is sure. Now, clearly, if justification is available to sinners by virtue of law-keeping and self-effort, then there is nothing sure about it. There's nothing sure about it. I mean, think about this. Let's just be really practical here. When was the last time you had a truly righteous thought or did something that you believed was truly pleasing to the Lord? And then ask yourself, how long did that righteous state, at least in your mind, how long did that last? How long did it last? Five minutes? 20 minutes? When the dog starts barking? When the kids start fighting? When you fill in the blank? It won't take long. Will it take an hour? Um, will it take 30 minutes? Will it take five minutes? It's not going to take long. And your perceived righteous state is gone. It's like a mist. It disappears. Beloved, there is no certainty. The whole point of this is, if your justification is grounded in you, you're in serious trouble. Because you can't maintain that. And not only can't you maintain it, you never had it to begin with. You never had it to begin with. And so this is so important for us. It's so important to us how transitory our perceived righteousness is. And that in itself should point us to the reality that we need a perfect righteousness that is sure, that is guaranteed. You see, if your justification depends on you, there can be no guarantees, except that you are going to break the law again and remain unjustified in God's sight. It's hopeless. You just can't do it. And by the way, this is precisely how Roman Catholic theology portrays justification. Beloved, this is, this is not something that was relevant 2,000 years ago. This is something relevant today. Because while we don't live in a Jewish culture we live in a kind of culture where there are religions around us and Roman Catholicism being the dominant one. And just across the highway here, there's a mosque, and that's another one. And I think there's good reason uh, to indicate that really the whole system of Muslim theology is grounded in Roman Catholic theology. But that's a different lecture. But in Roman Catholicism, think about this. When a child is born into a Roman Catholic home, he or she is considered void of grace, empty of grace, a kind of a tabula rasa, right? A blank slate. And then when the infant is baptized, when they want to get the infant baptized as soon as possible after birth, when the infant is baptized, he gets a massive infusion of grace. 
And that's the term they use, infusion. It's, it's infused. It's like, you know, at the end of a, of, a, of a workout, you go and you grab your Gatorade and you drink it. You're infusing your body with the nutrients of that thing, that, that liquid. And so that baptized baby is infused with grace. But if that baptized baby dies, he probably, with some certainty in, in their theology, he would go to heaven. But if that person subsequently, as he ages, commits what they refer to as venial sin, then he has to do penance, not repentance. It's not the same word. But penance. In order to absolve those sins, and that may involve citing 20 Hail Marys, or 50 if you did something that was worse, or 100 Hail Marys. They have the rosary they go through. This is all about meritorious acts that will get grace back to them. Taking the Mass, for example, would be one way to do penance. And if you're a good Catholic, you, you live near the church and you go to Mass every morning, every morning. And by the way, this is all based on, as I said before, this is all based on Old Testament ritualism and sacerdotalism, even the costumes that are worn. And so just as in Israel, every day the sacrifice had to be made, so in Roman Catholicism, every day the sacrifice, the wafer, which not just represents Christ in their theology, but becomes Christ, every day. And preferably every morning. And when those works are accomplished, one is infused with more grace. And more grace. And more grace. At least until they sin again. In which, in which case the cycle then starts over. You then go and make confession of sin and you are prescribed a certain kind of penance. And by penance and good works, they hope to receive more and more grace. However, if your Roman Catholic friend commits something really bad, like adultery or homosexuality or murder or something like that, that is called mortal sin. And it's called mortal sin not because the person dies, but because grace dies. The grace that has been infused in them is now dead. And they really have to start all over again. And so any amount of grace that they had before uh, they, they, that they earn through their good works, their penance, and whatever else, their indulgences, they lose it all. They lose all grace, and they have to start the process over. And in the end, in the end, however, how hopeless is this? In the end, they understand that no amount, no amount of good works, no amount of penance, no amount of rosary beads and going to the Mass will ever be enough. Every Roman Catholic knows that. Every faithful Roman Catholic man and woman believes that upon death they will fall into the fires of purgatory where they will remain for an undetermined period of time until they are holy and all of their unholiness is burned away. How's that for hope? And by the way, purgatory is nowhere in the scriptures. And so much of this is nowhere in the scriptures. It's one of the major reasons why Roman Catholicism is not Christianity. 
beloved, in, in this age that we live in, I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, you're a Christian. I mean, that's, that's the way it's accepted, but it's, it's another gospel. It's a different gospel. It is not the same. It is exactly what Paul's going after here. It's exactly what Paul's going after. And here is Paul. Put Paul in our context. If Paul were living in our context, and, and he grew up Roman Catholic rather than Jewish, he'd be going into the Roman Catholic churches as a priest. Can I teach? Can I do the homily? <laughs> You're going to be in serious trouble. So Paul's evaluation of such a scheme is found in Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. Romans 10, 3 and 4. You should turn there and look at it. Romans 10, 3 and 4. Here's his explanation. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes not everyone who does penance, not everyone who attends Mass. Beloved, there is no security in such a religion. It may look like Christianity, but it is not. There is no guarantee here, no assurance. Well, there's no positive guarantee. There is certainly a negative guarantee. There's nothing reliable, nothing sure. Why? Because the whole system it's about what you must do for yourself. I mean, you could never do for yourself anything that would cause God to declare you right with him. However, if justification is rooted in the gracious heart of God and the gracious work of God who never changes, who chose us from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, if he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, we know that our justification is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he may be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. Isn't that wonderful? He's talking about you in the present tense about something he did already justifying you. Whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, listen to this past tense, glorified. As far as God is concerned, it's a done deal. Talk about security. What then shall we say to these things, Paul says? By the way, I'm reading out of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered himself up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall separate us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is, the, who is at the right hand of God? 
who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am, listen to the next word, sure. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Can I just read that last line again? We will be, let me go back further. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor Powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? Nothing. Once you are justified, you cannot be unjustified. Beloved, this is assurance. This is guarantee. This is security. This is promise. You don't have to guess and blindly hope that when you stand before God at the judgment that he will declare you justified in his sight. You hope to, maybe someday, after a thousand years of purging, maybe you don't have to worry about that. Why? Because he did everything. He did everything necessary to ensure that you will be found right with God. You say, you don't understand how sinful I am. You're right about that. But if you're saying that, then I suspect you have no idea how great God is. Do not, my friend, oh, do not elevate your sin and make it greater than God. Because our justification comes to us by God's sovereign grace, our justification is guaranteed. And that status before him can never change. Finally, the third positive reason why our justification is by, must be by faith is so that, I love this one too, right? Don't we, I mean, it's the Bible, we love it all. <laughs> so that it can be for everyone. Look with me at verse 16. Once again, the second half of the verse reads, Romans 4, 16. That the promise may may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, all those who are Jewish and have believed in Jesus as their Messiah, and all the Gentiles who also believe in the Messiah, all of them, whether Jew or Gentile, who has the faith of Abraham, has expressed the faith of Abraham, these are the children of God. These are heirs to the promise of eternal life. Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe. 
whether Gentile or Jew, and none of those who have been justified, Jew or Gentile, are justified by adhering to the law. And frankly, the Gentiles never had the law. But that's okay because Abraham was counted righteous by God when he too was a Gentile and did not have the law. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, all of this is, is kind of stunning, isn't it? And I mean, for me, for me, maybe not for you, but for me, this is all fresh. This is wonderful. Abraham was justified by faith at least 14 years before God told him to be circumcised or perform any kind of religious ritual or fulfill any religious command. And because of that, he stands as the spiritual father of all who believe in Jesus, having been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ Jesus alone. And the merits of Christ Jesus is really what the Lord's table is all about. So prepare your heart for the Lord's table. Lord, thank you for this morning. I praise you for the opportunity to come and take this, having been reminded that law nullifies grace, it voids the promise, it brings wrath, that you have required that justification be by faith only, the empty hand of faith, so that it would be by grace, so that it would be guaranteed, and so that it can be for everyone. Oh, Father, we rejoice because this is the good news. And so we thank you. Give us hearts now that are eager to evaluate ourselves and see if there is any wicked way in us. But even... So, Father, that as things come to mind, that you would grant repentance, we would actively, that we would actively come to you with our sin and ask you to cleanse it afresh and new, to purify us as people for your own possession, holy unto God. And Father, I pray that you would give us grace also to rejoice with great joy in our hearts, knowing that you did this for us. I pray for anyone here who thinks they are too much of a sinner to be a, to be a beneficiary of this grace. Oh, Father, would you help them to see that there is no sin so big that God is not bigger still. And so, Father, rescue them, save them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.